Leadership File on Premier. Welcome to the show which talks to Christian leaders about the topics that really matter. I'm Andy Peck. This week I welcome to the Leadership File Ian Paul. Ian is a theologian, writer and speaker. He serves as an Associate Minister at St Nick's Nottingham and Honorary Assistant Professor at the University of Nottingham. He studied maths at undergraduate and postgraduate level, worked for a time in Mars Confectionery before training for ordination in the Church of England at St John's Nottingham and later returned to teach New Testament and practical theology and serve as Dean of Studies. He now spends time writing, researching and speaking in a freelance capacity and as a regular blogger. So welcome, Ian, to the Leadership File. Thanks very much, Andy. Uh, it's good good to chat with you. I, I mentioned briefly your journey into Christian leadership in my introduction. Was there a particular moment or period of time when you sensed a call to be ordained? There was. I mean, interestingly, when you asked the question, uh, was there a period of time um, when I was called into leadership? And actually reflecting back, it's very interesting. I was brought up in a a church-going background, but where personal faith didn't mean anything to me particularly. And actually, it was through meeting a, uh, a group of folk at a different church who, for whom faith was a really living thing, and I recognized there was something different there, that I, I came to faith as a teenager. And sure. um, I went off to university. I had a year out. I lived in Israel on a kibbutz and then went to university. And after my first year at university, and I obviously beginning to think about what God was calling me to do afterwards, I, I went back and uh, went and talked to the vicar of the church I'd been going to and said, I'm... I'm, I'm wondering about this sort of ordination thing and he just said oh i was waiting for you to come and talk to me so there was uh as i began to recognize god's call in my life you know that was that was echoed through uh, great that you um the, the the journey went as it did and um you've um in my introduction i mentioned uh that you've been involved in the more academic side of the faith and you now write and blog in that field. So um, talk a little bit about your, your view of the role of the academy in, in training people in Christian leadership. Well, I think the academy's had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Christian leadership and the practice of Christian ministry. And I think there have been times when academic theology has very much been set over against um, a devotional, a ministerial um, engagement. Um, but when I was uh, an undergraduate at university in Oxford, the, the theology department there had a very much a reputation of, of pulling, pulling faith apart. And uh, some of my peers had been warned, you know, if you're a Christian, don't study theology academically because it'll undermine your faith. Um, and, and that's a sign, I think, of a particular understanding of academic study versus ministerial engagement. And it's part of um, one part of an intellectual development, really, in, in Western thinking, the idea that academic study is, as it were, objective, but ministerial or devotional engagement is subjective, and therefore the two have no connection with one another. And I think that, that's a mistake at both ends. It, it, it's a mistake that it assumes that academic study has no presuppositions of its own, which simply isn't the case. And it also assumes that faith asks no hard questions, and that's not, that, that's not true either. And um, again, I hadn't particularly designed myself, as it were, getting into academics, it was very much a sense of God's call on me. I, I'd expected I was going to train for ordination, go into church leadership, and in fact, it was a very specific call of God on my life. It sounds really odd to be called to do a PhD, but that's how it was um, for me. Um, and it, it seemed to me really key to integrate those two things. So on the one hand, demonstrating that academic study has a whole set of presuppositions and assumptions of its own, and that those can be questioned, so we can be critical of, as it were, critical study on the one hand. 
on the other hand, that actually faith that's going to be robust and, and faith that's going to be convincing in a post-Christendom context actually needs to ask hard questions of itself, and it needs to demonstrate to others that faith isn't simply shutting your eyes to the facts and just believing anyway, as some people seem to think, but actually faith is about um, a, a decision to commit. And it's a decision to commit in the light of evidence. It's not a leap in the dark. It's, as it were, yes, a decision to leap, but it's a leap into the light in, in, on the basis of what evidence there is. So, um, so I think my conviction has always been that there's a connection between good study on the one hand and, and committed discipleship on the other. And actually, one of the things I find really exciting about biblical studies particularly, which was my, my main area of interest, is that there have been so many evangelical Christians involved in biblical studies in the last 30, 40, 50 years that the landscape of biblical studies has really changed and transformed in, in, in that time, that time since I started academic study myself. And so some of the leading scholars in the academic world are actually people of evangelical faith. Uh, and the idea, for example, that the Gospels were written early and are reliable eyewitness testimonies to the ministry of Jesus is now a credible academic perspective. Uh, whereas 20, 30 years ago, it wasn't. It was seen as a you know, slightly fringe, slightly uh, marginal. Um, and so actually, it, it's a very exciting time to be doing academic study uh, in theology and biblical studies um, as a Christian. Sure. And, and of course, uh, today's generation is, uh, is indebted to some extent to those in the 50s, 60s and 70s, the likes of F.F. F. Bruce and uh, Donald, Donald Wiseman and yep. um, and uh, I'm, I'm sure we could think of others, who, yep, <laughs> you know, who who uh, at a time when evangelicalism was uh, was afraid of academia, um, got in there and and argued for for what we would regard regard as a Bible believing position on on issues that, that the academy had uh, rejected. Yes, absolutely, and not only argued for that, but were actually pioneering. So, I mean, F. F. Bruce mm. was uh, involved in founding the Biblical Studies Department at Sheffield University, which is yeah. sadly now coming to a close. Um, and obviously his reputation moving to Manchester as well is really key. And then the, the generation that followed that, so um, my P one of my PhD supervisors, Stephen Travis, uh, someone who's a good friend of mine, Dick France, mm. um, Howard Marshall, Tom Wright, obviously, um, folk who really have, uh, uh, have shaped the, uh, uh, the leading authorities uh, in the area and have now influenced the, the generation to come. Sure. Now, in terms of, uh, obviously, um, theological colleges are often criticised for for what they focus on, and they don't do enough, it's said, in, in terms of the practical sides of leadership. And um, yeah. uh, clearly clearly, you have a limited amount of time <laughs> yeah. um, to, to do a limited amount of things. Uh, but, you you know, you, you served at um, St. John's Knockham. Any, any thoughts in terms of the balance between what we might call the <laughs> academic and the practical? Well, of course, everybody wants, has their own agenda, and everybody wants all of the things that they think are important all covered in the yeah, yeah. two or three years of initial training. Um, and one thing that's worth recognizing is that there is quite a significant difference between Anglican approaches to training and the approaches to training of other churches, mm -hmm. um, in that people don't often realize it. They think that, that for Church of England leaders that they do two or three years at college and that's it. And actually, that isn't it at all. Um, officially, Anglican training is about your first five, six, or seven years. Only the first half of that is spent in a college context, and the second half is spent in apprenticeship mode. So the Church of England doesn't believe people are trained in church leadership until they've done both halves of that. Okay, so they've no. done their, their study and they've done their curacy. And, and, and there's a real danger of having too much expectation of those first um, two or three years. And, and, of course, people are always going to be, be critical, saying, well, they haven't done this, haven't done that. 
I guess for me, one of the questions is if you're going to build a house, um, where do you invest the initial part of your work? Are you worried about building walls and doors and windows? Or is it worth actually getting the foundations right first? Sure. Mm. Um, and for no matter what stage of life people come into training for leadership, it's really key that people get the foundations right. And and that's one of the virtues of, again, a, a style of training which has seemed to be going out of fashion, which is actually to to come away from the pressures of practical leadership into a different environment. People say, oh, well, you know, you're going to an ivory tower. But actually, you know, Jesus had the habit of saying to the disciples, come away with me for a time by yourselves. And Jesus seemed to see the need for time away from leadership to put roots down. Paul seemed to see the need for that too. I mean, before the main part of Paul's public ministry, he spent 10, 12, 14 years really mostly out of the limelight laying foundations. Um, and actually then had a, a period of, of his own leadership, a, a really intense period of 10 or 12 years, where he was traveling and founding churches. And uh, um, and, I, and I think it's really important to get those foundations laid. And, and, and often I used to say to people who come to college, look, you know, you've, you've, you've got a lot of lay leadership experience at St. John's because we're an evangelical college. Um, people who came to train were often lay leaders. They're often maybe youth pastors, or they, they, they've got a lot of ministry experience under their belt. I said, this is the time to lay those things down to look at your foundations and to re-examine them. Because, you see, you, it's very difficult to relay a foundation if you're standing on it and you're not <laughs> yes, standing indeed. on it. You've actually, yeah. got to, you've actually got to maybe even knock some walls down, look at the foundations and say, have I got the key, my key understandings of theology, of ministry, of Scripture? Have I got them in the right place? And, and that, this is the, often the only time in people's life when they can really mm. ask some of those hard questions. And for many people, even coming to college training in their late 20s, early 30s, you know, I'd say to them, well, you could spend 35 or 40 years in active ministry you know you want to get your foundations right sure no that's that's a very good good defense i think of the of the kind of approach that that's taken splendid well you're listening to the leadership file with me andy peck i'm joined this week by ian paul um, we'll be back just after this welcome back to the leadership file with me andy peck i'm joined this week by ian paul ian is a theologian writer and speaker and a regular blogger. We were talking before the break a little bit about uh, uh, the training for the Anglican uh, ministry. Paul having uh, served himself at uh, St. John's Nottingham as, a, as a, both in teaching New Testament and practical theology and also as, as Dean of Studies. Uh, and moving on uh, to um, your, your area of interest, uh, Ian, the, the kind of uh, bi- uh, biblical studies approach yeah. and, and, and thinking particularly about Christian leadership. And um, I'm just wondering if you, if you kind of had a blank sheet of paper... <laughs> Um, and we're constructing church leadership for today according to New Testament principles. What kind of things would, would, would be in place there in terms of structure and practice? I think that's a really interesting question, and I want to kind of say to you, I think that's not the right question. It's a question I don't want to answer. Ah. I'm not being like a politician, but <laughs> the reality is we never have a blank sheet of paper. No, okay. And the reality is neither did Paul, neither did Jesus, neither did any of the New Testament leaders. Okay. And um, I think we're deluding ourselves if we imagine that what the New Testament does is give us some sort of pristine template mm. because they were starting from scratch. They weren't. They weren't starting in a vacuum. They were starting within a particular culture, within mm. a particular accepted understanding of leadership and what that meant. And we always have to read the New Testament uh, against that. Um, you know, there's a well-known saying, a text without a context is a pretext. In other sure. words, if you ignore the context of what you're reading, you can actually make the text say anything they like. Um, for me, I think one of the things I've been very impressed by, uh, two, two things, really, two aspects of, 
of the same reality. One is the extent to which first century culture was patriarchal. It's not, it wasn't uniformly so. There was quite a difference between Greek understandings of gender relations and Roman understandings. For instance, Roman understandings of marriage looked to be more egalitarian than Greek understandings, which seemed to be more hierarchical. Nevertheless, by and large, the culture had a quite a strong patriarchal feel to it, as any culture does which depends on physical strength and, uh, you know, warfare and the army and uh, those things were, were key realities in, in the Roman Empire. And against that, one of the things that's so striking about the New Testament, we often miss this, is how remarkably egalitarian it is in terms of gender relations. I was um, teaching about Paul and, and 1 Corinthians uh, a few years ago and just read 1 Corinthians 7. And as I read it in the class, it just leapt out of me. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, where he says, uh, a, a, a woman does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And you go, well, yeah, that's fine. You can see how that's acceptable in that culture. And then he goes on with the other half. Neither does a man over his own body, but the woman in marriage has authority over the man's body. And we, it's really easy to miss what a radical statement that was for Paul to make in, in his culture. And that's part of a wider issue as well. Uh, again, how with the system of honor and shame, with the system, system of patronage in the first century, Paul's writings do read as radically egalitarian across you know, every class of humanity. Uh, and the idea that every member of a church community had received the Spirit, was gifted, had something to contribute in the assembly. Each of you bring a word or a prophecy. I mean, that is that is really quite remarkable. And, and I think just for me, that pattern means that there's a very strong human tendency always to for leadership to become monarchical, so there's one leader, for it to become hierarchical, for it to become authoritarian. That's just a natural human impulse. And yet it seems to me that as we read the New Testament, the constant move of the Spirit of God is to get back to a fundamentally egalitarian understanding of humanity. Every person, man, woman, free, slave, Greek, Jew, whatever, every person created in the image of God, every person uh, a participant in the receipt of this extraordinary eschatological gift of the Spirit. Uh, and so a real dynamism in the in the church community. And that, that seems to me to be just a key reality of, of the dynamics of leadership in the New Testament. Sure. Uh, and you, um, you've you written a book on women and authority. And, um, yes, I have. And we've, we've had, um, you know, uh, on, on this show before, looked a little at... Um, uh, some of the different views of uh, yeah. that people have about women in leadership, and more, some more conservative evangelicals believing the Bible prohibits women from taking overall leadership role in a church setting. Yeah. Um, what what kind of ground do you cover in your book? Well, I, I'm a bit ambitious. I try and look <laughs> look at each of the key oh. texts, and again, it is a question of looking carefully at the context, at the shape, at looking some of the broad issues as well as look at some of the some of the details. Um, and I, I, I am just amazed that people read 1 Timothy 2 and say, there you go, uh, Paul clearly prohibits women from exercising authority. And it's far from clear. Paul uses a, a different set of terms than he would use if he was, he was doing a general prohibition. And one of the things I find odd as well is about the way that people will hold on to one text and, and say, oh, this text must be the key to all others. And I just simply ask the question, say, why? Why that text? Why is that the, the key thing? And actually, when you look at um, the text of Paul, Paul's theology overall, um, 
one of the most dominant features of it. Clearly, he's focused on what God is doing. Clearly, he's focused on on Jesus and and, and what God has done for us in Jesus and and the whole participation in Christ as being a a controlling metaphor for Paul. But the other key thing is the work of the Spirit. And um, you try and cut out mentions of the Holy Spirit in Paul, and you're not left with very much. And the the, the fact that the Spirit is given to all and the, the role of the Spirit, and the Spirit enables both women and men to exercise authoritative prophetic ministry. Whatever you believe about prophetic ministry now, it's clear that in the first century, prophecy was an authoritative ministry that shaped the church's understanding and that women were prophets as were men. Uh, They were exercising an authoritative ministry. Paul didn't seem to have a a problem with that. And that just seems to me a really central part of um, Paul's theology. So therefore, in Romans 16, when we see women listed alongside men as significant leaders in the church, uh, that's no surprise. And it, it, it's, sad. it's sad for me to see how, at times in the past, um, unfortunately, um, evangelicals have actually tried to dodge what the, the sense of the text is, even to the point of, uh, at some points, actually changing what the text is saying, because it doesn't fit with a particular agenda. And, and I guess that also comes back for me to be, what does it mean to be an evangelical? To be an evangelical, okay, it's, it's to be part of a particular tradition, but more than that, it's to is to say that whatever my tradition is, whether it's evangelical or sacramental or liberal or whatever it is, in the end, um, each of those traditions needs to be constantly open to being reformed by Scripture and to be open to what Scripture is saying and to allow Scripture to critique our tradition. Sometimes evangelicals seem to be more attached to their evangelical tradition than they have been attached to actually allowing Scripture <laughs> to uh, to transform that, you know, we need to we need to not just read scripture, but allow scripture to read us as well. Indeed, thank you. Um, most church leaders will be uh, informed by by scripture in terms of their, or at least what they hope is an un- a good understanding of scripture in terms of their leadership. But also, of course, there's contemporary. Um, the contemporary scene also gives insights, um, you know, what we might call secular sources, if you yeah. don't, don't mind the use, use of the word secular. Um, uh, what do you make of the kind of ways in which many churches have have uh, kind of almost imbibed the the management culture of, of, of the world and uh, and used it for its own purposes? Is, it, is this good or not? Um, it's good and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm an Anglican. It's got to be one or the other, <laughs> hasn't it? Um, it <clears throat> it's good in the sense that well, I mean, if we do have a theology of the world which is informed by Scripture, then we need to recognize not just that uh, we're fallen, but also that we are created in God's image. It's about both and. And if you believe that we were um, originally made in God's image, unless you think that the fall obliterated all insights to that, there's a sense in which you want to, I want to say actually anything out there in the world potentially can contribute to kingdom understanding, uh, can be reformed, transformed, can be adopted, because, um, you know, God has left his footprints in the world. He's not invisible. Um, it's, a, it's a constant theme. It's a theme in the Psalms. It's a theme in, a, in Paul that, actually, if you look at the world, you can see evidence of God. And, and therefore, I don't think I'd want to say secular leadership insights have nothing to say. I want to say we want to appropriate them. On the other hand, we need to, again, scrutinize them through Christian theology. And I think that there is a real danger that in the same way that secular leadership sometimes just looks like a technique or, or a program, um, we need to really remember that the kingdom doesn't grow through a program. Uh, programs are not the answer. Uh, new life in 
Christ's encounter with God through the Spirit is, is actually what matters. So, yes, leadership, secular leadership paradigms can offer us insight, but we just need to be, be clear that these things serve us rather than us serving them, and they don't squeeze us into the mold. And actually, even Christian leadership programs um, can sometimes look as though it's, they're a bit formulaic. Um, and I'm, I'm really impressed by the work of um, Mike Breen and the Order of Mission and um, the, the Life Shapes program. I don't know if you've... Yes, indeed. Yeah, it's, it's terrific yeah. stuff, yeah. Uh, and I think the great stuff, <clears throat> they're really insightful. Mm. But they're not a program to solve all your answers. No. And, and yes, they are based in Scripture, but they're not a substitute for Scripture. And I think the real danger with any program is that you end up focusing on the program rather than focusing on the fact that the program offers a tool to have insights, again, back into Scripture and to Christian theology. Sure. So we must make sure that we use them to, uh, that we use them to serve us, not the other way around. Thank you, Ian. Um, we've just got a couple of minutes left, but um, I did want to mention the, the the Grove Books, and you were for many years editor of Grove Books. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and if if people are uh, listening and not aware of them, I just wanted to commend that that series because they're just there's just some some fantastic um, ministry there. Um, yeah, that's great. Thank you. And and the, the vision for Grove is really to make um, good insights into leadership, into education, ethics, spirituality, into biblical studies, accessible for leaders. We tend to find the readers are people who are full-time leaders in their church, ordained leaders, but also um, uh, people with significant lay leadership responsibility. The great thing about them is they're 28 pages. You can read them in an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. You can pass them around, and they really d- distill uh, expert insight and, and the people who, who write them are practitioners so they're people who, who've road tested things yeah. uh and uh and we cover you know just about everything so yeah if people want to go and look at the, the grove books websites they'll, they'll find something really good and you've got one soon to be published same sex unions the key biblical texts i have and uh, <laughs> i always seem to pick the topics which demand kind of phd huh? level work uh, again i'm trying to do the impossible cover you know, on that the vexed issue, which is just hitting the headlines all the time on, on the whole question of same-sex relations. And again, my real concern is that um, within the church, there's a growing tendency to say, actually, the, the, the text in the Bible on same-sex unions, you know, the ones that, that, that prohibit same-sex activity, don't really mean what people thought they meant. And so my concern is to really look at those in detail. Actually, I, I, I want to engage with the current debate, particularly there's an awful lot of stuff online, on social media, on YouTube and so on. And actually say, look, let, let's have a really good look at these texts and, and, and let's see what they really do say. And, and actually, I don't think it is the case that 2,000 years of Christian reading of these texts is completely mistaken, as some people say. And that's why, unfortunately, this whole debate about um, same-sex unions has come to the fore, because it, it really is does come down to, I think, a question about whether or not Scripture can speak meaningfully into our contemporary context. So it isn't just about a particular ethical issue or about a, a group in society or about justice. It really is a question of whether or not Scripture can speak to our contemporary context. Um, I think it can. Splendid. And just, just finally, we need to need to mention your blog. And uh, if you could pronounce the name for us. Yeah, I could. Yeah. The blog is Psefidzo, and I, but I won't ask anyone to, to, to pronounce that or to spell it out. <laughs> if you want to find it, the best way is to do a, do a search on the, on the internet for Ian Paul blog. You'll find me there. Number one on the, on the Google listing. Number two is a guy in the Tel Aviv who blogs about computing. So if you end up there, that's the wrong one. <laughs> but the reason it's got that Greek name is because, again, it's part of the, it goes back to the first question, really. Um, that Greek word means to calculate or to reckon. It comes in Revelation uh, 13, 18. Uh, he who has wisdom, calculate the number of the beast. Um, I did my PhD research on, on those chapters. 
uh, and it's really about saying look faith isn't this irrational thing actually it is about engaging our minds and loving god with our minds as well as our hearts and our souls our energy and so on and yes some of the things in christian faith are a mystery and it, and it is about revelation but it's also about engaging our, our brains and thinking issues through as well and, and and my concern in the blog is to really facilitate and to resource leaders as they're thinking through some um, difficult issues terrific well I, I just want to commend the blog, blog to folk and uh, and your continued work so thank you so much and uh, for being my, my guest on the leadership file You've been listening to the Leadership File with me, Andy Peck. I was joined this week by Ian Paul, a theologian, writer and speaker and blogger. And uh, do um, check his blog out um, by, by uh, writing Ian, Ian Paul blog in, the, um, in, in your search engine. Well, I look forward to your company again next Sunday at 3.30. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Leadership File on Premier. Andy Peck serves as a tutor at CWR, a Christian charity whose courses and publications aim to apply God's Word to everyday life. Contact him via email apeck at cwr.org.uk.